So parents these days get creative when there is a baby approaching. Uh, we, we have three and with each of ours, we took different ways to share the news that there was a, another baby coming. A couple of years ago, we had not told anybody that Christy was expecting Caleb and so we hung our stockings as normal on our mantle and put right in the middle of the stockings the ultrasound picture right there and took a picture of it and sent it to family and let them know that way that this year there are four stockings, but next year there will be five. When, when Addison was born, when, when Christy and I were expecting Addison, Braden was two and he was really big into tractors. And so we were trying to think of ways that we could incorporate tractors for this soon-to-be big brother. And so Christy found a t-shirt on that said, uh, uh, one day I'll get to drive my own tractor, but for, but for now I'm just going to be a big brother. And so my parents were out of town and we were on our way uh, to, to Florida for a week and we stopped at my parents' house and spent the night there and used my dad's tractor to take pictures of Braden to tell people that we were having a, a baby. When, when we found out it was going to be a girl, we took a Hershey bar and in the middle of Hershey, it spells S-H-E. And so we took a pink marker and colored in the S-H-E on the Hershey bar wrapper to tell people it was going to be a girl. You'll pop, people will pop balloons. They'll have cakes baked. They'll have all of these great things to tell you if it's a boy or a girl, where a lot of you will probably remember sitting in the waiting room while your wife was giving birth with a box of pink cigars and a box of blue cigars and didn't know which one you're going to get to hand out. It gets exciting when there is a baby that's going to be born. It gets exciting when we get to tell somebody of a new life that's going to come. And, and all of these birth announcements, and we see them, especially on social media, man, you, man, we've got streaming videos, we've got pictures, we've got everything going. All of this makes me wonder, what would God do to announce that his baby was going to be born. How would God approach the birth announcement of his own son? Well, I'm glad you thought the same question as I did. And I'm going to ask you to look in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9, just for a few moments. If you're not sure where Isaiah is, it's towards the middle of your Bible, maybe a little bit just to the right side of, of the middle. It's on page 572 in my Bible, if you have the same copy as I do. Um, but we're looking at a passage of scripture where God announced that his son was going to be born. And, and where most of us nowadays are able to tell you uh, within about eight months at the earliest, and sometimes we wait till about that six-month time window to let you know a baby is going to be born, God tells Israel that his son is going to be born 720 years in advance. Let's look together in Isaiah chapter 9. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish, in earlier times, he treated her, treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall 
increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of the harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff of their shoulders. The rod of their oppressor is at the battle of Midian for every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult. And the cloak rolled in blood will be burning, be for burning for fuel of the fire. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest upon his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on to forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Let's pray together. Father, we celebrate every year with trees and lights and gifts and feasts and gatherings and memories and songs, the season of Christmas. This time when you split history This time when you entered into our world, not with just a spoken word, but with your very presence, your very self taking on our form. You, God most high, saw fit to love us in this way. And Lord, may we take nothing else from here except for the simple attitude and heart of thanks. Thanks be to our God and Father for sending your son, Jesus. Open our hearts to your word. Open our hearts to your way that we might know you. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. This passage of scripture is just rich with imagery and rich with history and rich with promise. And all of this comes to the point and comes to the fullness of what God has done for us. What, what God said would take place that did take place. I can remember, I can remember hearing for the very first time the cry of our son, Braden. Now, now in, in, the, in the, see, he was born a month early, so 36 weeks, we find out that Christy's expecting somewhere probably around week four, week five. So there's about a 32-week window there that, that we're working with, that, that, we're, that we're just anticipating what's this going to be like. And we're, we're getting the room ready, we're painting, we're buying furniture, we're collecting diapers, we're getting packing. Babies require so much stuff. To, to be so little, I mean, Braden was, what, six pounds when he was born? We took him home from the hospital, he was like a little over five and a half pounds. Man, he was a tiny little thing. Like, I could sit him up here on my shoulder and go to sleep. It was like having a chihuahua. I mean, it was just little. But he had more stuff than Christian and I combined. For this little bitty tiny thing. But I can remember in those months, just the building anticipation. Oh man, we had talked to him. 
I'd get down there next to, to, to Christy's stomach and I'd be like, all right, buddy, I'm your dad, I'm Evan, and you're going to obey me and you're going to do everything I say and you're going to mow the yard by the time you're three and you're going to be potty trained. But all these, you know, just having these conversations and talking and, 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 and building up and, and all the while, Christy and I would talk to ourselves and say, what's it going to be like when he gets here? What's it really going to be like? Oh, we'd, we'd talk to parents. Oh, you don't know what you're in for. The sleepless nights and, and the cries and the diapers and the laughter. Like, oh, well, we got nieces and nephews. You know, we've seen all these things. But and this, we're having these conversations. What are we getting into? What's it really going to be like? And the anticipation is greater and greater as God makes announcement after announcement after announcement through the Old Testament of the coming Messiah, the promised prince, the one that will take away your pain, the one that will take away your sin, the one that will bring you into my family as he comes. And and, and we live in this already but not yet realized promise because Jesus did come, but we're still waiting on that final day of redemption where this body is no more. But we get into this passage of scripture and we start looking at some things that God is promising about this baby. Now, now here's the cool thing about God's promises with this baby. They come true. It, it, it happens. See, I was telling Braden when he was just this little bitty, we, we called him our little fish. I'll have to tell you that story at another time. We called him our little fish and, 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 and Braden's name actually means one with a salmon-like appearance, um, and a salmon is a fish. So he, I, I'll, I'll fill you in on the whole story there at, at a later day. But we call him our little fish. And so I talked to him, I'm like, well, you know, one day you're going to grow up, you're going to play in the NFL, you're going to play Major League Baseball, you know, you're going to win the Heisman at Florida. I'm telling him all these great things. I don't know if any of that's going to come true. I don't know if any of that's going to happen. We have all these great wishes and great desires, but, but we don't have the ability to say, this is who you're going to be and this is what you're going to do. And it actually happens. Most days we can't even get our kids dressed on time, much less tell them who they're going to be when they get to be 30. But God comes in here, he says, there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish in the earlier times. He treated the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali with contempt, but later on he will make it glorious. What happens in this promise is that God shows us that this birth of Christ, when he comes, the birth of Christ would bring a new walk of life. There would be a new pattern to existence for those people that understood the weight and the import of this baby that God was announcing. He says here, there there will be no more gloom. Now I want you to keep in mind, it was not a pretty day in the day of Isaiah in Israel. As Isaiah is writing this, Israel is being attacked by the Assyrians. Israel is being taken captive and taken hostage. And they are carried off into an exile in Babylon because of their idolatry. It's not a pretty day. There is war going on all around. There are women that are sending their sons and their husbands to battle, not knowing if they're going to come, not knowing if the marauders are going to steal everything from their home as they are being ransacked in punishment for their idolatry, for their wickedness, for their sin. And God says, this is a gloomy day for you and you've got to realize this, but I'm sending one who's going to bring about a new way of life, a new pattern for your existence, a way that you can walk with me forever. He says there, there will be no more gloom for her 
who is in anguish. Just the words of God right there paint such a drastic picture. They, they paint such a harsh picture. This is why I believe Christmas is for everyone. Christmas is not just for the, 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 the high of society. I believe Christmas is for those that are struggling and those that are hurting, that the birth of Christ reaches into the crevices of our heart that we want to ignore, that we want to placate, that we want to act as though they don't exist because the birth of Christ would come in and usher for us no matter where our station in life happens to fall would bring us into a place where we can see the beauty of God in all things and say, this is a new way to live. It says, in earlier times he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt, but later on he shall make it glorious. Glorious. See, Israel's sin had produced gloom. This is a true statement for all of us. Sin produces gloom. I don't care how glamorous Hollywood or it's going to be Atlanta with all the movie industry that we have around here. I, I don't care how glamorous your, your, your work associates, your friends, your neighbors. I don't care how glamorous the world makes sin appear. It brings gloom. It brings pain. It brings hardship. We, we live in a day uh, where there's this massive movement going on in our country. You've probably heard of it. And if you're on social media, you've definitely seen the hashtag of this Me Too movement. Where, where numbers of women who have been uh, assaulted sexually um, have come forward with their story. And some of the highest ranking officials in the land to some of the wealthiest men that this country has ever known have been, have been shown for, for their true colors. And I saw this past week, uh, somebody had on Twitter and it was just like the, the stroke of genius. And it points to how sin brings gloom because we live in a culture that wants to glamorize sex and sexuality. We live in the age of the sexual liberation and all it's done is brought brokenness and hardship. And what they had there, on, on what the tweet said was, no one who has, the only people who aren't afraid of the Me Too movement are those who have nothing to hide. Think, think about the shame of, of, and the wickedness of the world because sin brings gloom, period. And, and, and it's not just in this one regard. Greed brings gloom. Gluttony brings gloom. Drunkenness brings gloom. Sin brings gloom. For Israel, it was the sin of idolatry continuing to worship God after God after God who was not the true God. For us, it is the continual worship of God after God after God who was not the true God. All sin boils down to idolatry of heart and thinking that something else, another feeling, another emotion, another person can provide all that only God can. And they always let us down. Always. Y'all know I like sports. I'm just grateful that I'm saved and not putting all my hope and trust in my gators because it's just, it's just it lets me down every single time. I was a Braves fan. I'll tell you what, growing up in the 90s as a Braves and a Gators fan was great. These last eight years have been rough, man. I tell you, because it's going to let you down. 
My family is going to let me down. My, my church will let me down. We, we live in an age of church hurt. Your church has let you down at some point. Someone in the church has hurt you. Someone in the church has disappointed you. We live in an age of church hurt. It's because we can't place all of the importance of a savior on something that is not the savior because sin brings gloom. But look at what he promises, verse two. He says, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Jesus brings the light. Jesus is the light. Jesus, when he comes, he illuminates the path of righteousness and ushers in a new walk of life. It's a walk that looks different than anything that you would ever experience from what this world could offer. It, it's, it's a walk of joy and jubilee and gladness, even in pain, e even in disappointment, even when it seems that life has thrown its hardest, nastiest curveball at you. Man, I, I watch some of these major league pitchers. I, I love watching the highlights. And Believe me, I'm, I'm not an athlete. I like sports. I tried to play sports. Obviously, I wasn't good enough to do sports professionally or else, you know, that's what I would be doing. Um, but I know y'all are surprised by that. I know. But, but I love watching in the summer, like on Sports Center, they'll show like continued highlights of, of these, these pitchers that make this nasty curveball that just goes like that. And the batters look goofy, swinging and missing. They'll topple over and they'll spin around because one of the hardest things to do in all of sports is hitting a moving baseball as it's being pitched to you. That's why we celebrate batters that only hit the ball 30% of the time. A quarterback that completes 30% of his passes is not going to make it. But if you get up there and hit 30% of, of, of your at-bats, you get a base hit, man, you're doing great. Life will throw some of the worst things at you. But walking in the light walks to the side of the wicked and the evil into the path of righteousness that God has provided through Christ Jesus. It says, those of you that live in a dark land, the light will shine. It's shone bright from a stable in Bethlehem as this child was born. But then he goes on. He goes on and he shows the joy of what's about to happen because the birth of Christ would overflow with joy. The birth of Christ would bring out such great joy. Look what it says in verse three. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Uh, your translation, probably you'll notice there, every time it says you, it's a capital U. So, so God has shifted in this, in this speaking from speaking just about Israel, about the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, which you, you should know that um, we talk about Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth, the city, was lay, lay, located in what was the land of Zebulun, just to the north, yeah, northwest side of, of the Israeli, Israeli territory. But, but he says here, he speaks, he says, you, 
He's not speaking to himself. He's now speaking to the person of Christ that pre-existed before Jesus was born. The one that was there when all the world was created, when everything was made, when it was just Father, Son, Holy Spirit in this blessed unity of Trinity before time began. He says, you are the one, Jesus. You are the one that is going to multiply. You are the one that is going to build. You are the one that will increase. This is talking about, these are agricultural terms that he's using here. They're the same terms that he used when he told Adam all the way back in Genesis chapter one, multiply and fill the earth. When they came off of the ark and he told Noah and his sons, multiply and fill the earth. He tells Jesus, you will multiply this nation that I've been promising these people, this kingdom that of my own doing, you are the one that will bring it to fruition. But notice the terms he uses. You will increase their gladness. They, they will be glad in your presence. Church people, let me ask you a question. This is, this is an honest soul searching question. And, and, and maybe it's not supposed to be the question for you because you're here this morning, but do we really get this gladness and this joy just of thinking about being in the presence of Christ? David says over in the book of Psalms, I was glad when they said to me, let's go to the house of the Lord. I was glad when I had the opportunity to to go and worship the king of kings with God's people. And, And we live in a day where there are a thousand excuses for why you shouldn't be here. You know, the football game kickoffs at one, so I got to get home, make sure everything's ready to go for the, for, to have the, the, the spread set out there and everything. Oh, I, I've got family that I saw last week coming over on Sunday. Uh, there are a thousand, oh, I've got to make sure I do this. We're going to make sure I go that. I've got to go here. I've got to be there. All these things that we are trying to substitute gladness that God says it's only going to come through Christ. It, it's only coming through him. I believe that if we took the gladness of the the presence of the Lord will bring seriously, we would make sure that we had more people than we could fit into the sanctuary each and every week because we were going and bending over backwards to get them here. That is what the gladness that only God can provide brings. He says, the birth of Christ would overflow joy. And and, and we, we put plans together. We put all these things together for Christmas and gatherings and family and feasts and all these things. But we always marginalize over here to the side what the point of it all was to be. It wasn't to give us a nice Christmas celebration. It was to give us a sense of belonging in the family of God that we could erupt with joy in his presence. And he goes on. He goes on and gives us three reasons here for this joy. The first one's in verse four. He says, you, you will break the yoke of their burden and the staff of their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. This promise for joy is because the birth gave liberty, true liberty. This is something that the majority of us in America miss because we were born in the land of the free. Rightly understood the, the majority of us don't really understand oppression. We've never been oppressed. We, we, we can throw some platitudes towards oppression. Um, like, 
in the 60s. So if you were in, your, in college years in the 60s, I'm not talking specifically about you, but about your generation. So just take it for what it is. Um, the oppression of the liberal arts college. And so you'd ransack the dean's office because you know, you're gonna fight for your rights there at the college. That's not oppression. The privilege to go to college. My, my generation... Oh man, I, I can remember some of my friends in high school talking about the oppression of the administration of our high school for not letting us wear flip-flops. That's not oppression. That's called a dress code. The, the, the things that we consider oppression in general aren't there, but there are segments of our society, segments of our people, and even in this room right now that have felt the oppression, whether it is a racial oppression, whether it's a socioeconomic oppression, that true oppression actually exists. And we've got to come to grips with the fact that the gospel came to liberate us from oppression. One of my favorite verses in any Christmas song ever comes in Oh Holy Night. I know we just sang this a minute ago, but Oh Holy Night's probably hands down my my favorite Christmas song if the right person sings it. And if the not right person sings it, it's a train wreck disaster. You've got to have a big voice to sing, oh, holy night. But he says there in the, verse, in the, in the third verse, it says, truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Chains shall he break for the slave is our brother and in his name all oppression." shall cease. All oppression shall cease. This is a call of the gospel for all of us under the banner of Christ to seek the betterment and the well-being of our fellow citizens of this country, of this state, of this world. So that they would be able to see not just, man, those Christians are nice people, but those Christians serve a true savior that I need as well. Oppression is broken at the cross of Jesus Christ because it is, it is for all of us that he has come. It is for all of us that he has died. And it is because he came to give liberty. He came and the promise to Israel was, I will free you. You will be free. You will have your own land again. And he brought them out of the bondage there. And it was a specific promise to them that remains for us today that oppression would end because he promised liberty. Not only to promise liberty, he promised victory. Look at verse five, uh, verse five. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and the cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, for fuel, for fire. What, what he's saying here, the battle's over. There's no, there's, there's, there's no war. I know there's, there's, there's war going on in our world. And he's like, well, God, you really missed that one because um, you said right there there'd be no more war and all these warriors would be done with their armor and everything, but we still got wars. It's an already but not yet promise. He has already come to usher in peace, to give us peace, to give us the fullness of all that he has. And God announced this 700 years before he came. And one day he's going to have the battle that ends all battles because he has assured victory. So you and I can live in victory today. We can live without the chains and the bonds of oppression today. We can live in victory today because he has already won. He's already won. Didn't need a tank. Didn't need a bomb. 
didn't need some sort of cyber attack or whatever the next modern warfare thing is going to be. He did it through a baby. A baby that he promised to be born that came. The third reason he gives us in verse six is that this birth was of divine grace. Look here where he says, for a child is born to us, a son is given. Unto us, a child is born. Unto us, a son is given. I love the way that he phrases it here. He uses a stem in the Hebrew that places a future action as as though it's already been complete. We can look at it this way. It's as though Isaiah is standing there at the nursery window of the hospital looking at the baby that has just been born and he's celebrating, pointing like, this is the one. This is the one. 700 years before Jesus was born, he's sitting there as though he's looking into the stable, as though he's looking into the manger and says, this is the child. This is the one. This is the grace of God right here. 720 years in advance. You know who can accomplish that? Only God. Only God can place Isaiah, the the prophet, the weeping prophet, the one that nobody was listening. Man, I'm telling you, Isaiah had the toughest preaching job in the entire world. Go look at chapter six sometime. He sees this vision of God and says, hey God, I'll go. I'll go for you. I'll go preach. Yeah. And God says, okay, good. You go preach, but nobody's going to listen to you. Go go preach, preach all over the world. But nobody's going to listen to what I'm going to send for you to say. That's tough. I've preached in places where it feels like you're standing there and you're preaching, you're preaching your heart out and you're giving, this is the word of God, this is salvation for all of you. And it's like the words go, and maybe make it to the second step. Isaiah's words went, But still, he says, this is the child. He's peering in with this beautiful picture that only God can give him. He says, this is the child. For unto us, Israel, unto us, 700 years from now, it's going to happen. But unto us, as though it happened today, this child is born. First Baptist Fairburn, for unto us today, this child is born, even though it took place 2,000 years ago, this child is born because of the grace of God. Because God saw that he would, that, that you would be born. He saw that you would need a savior. He saw that you were part of this same flesh problem that I have, that we would need something bigger. He said, so here is the child. Here is the baby. This is the one. This is my grace for you. That's a baby. That's a baby. We all have high aspirations for our children, for our babies. Now, I'm still, I'm still, seriously, I'm still waiting on Braden to get that scholarship offer to play football or baseball. He can get a nerd scholarship offer. I don't care. I just hope he gets a scholarship offer to go somewhere. And, and, and I'm expecting that either he's, either he's going to make his millions playing baseball or football or, or, or being like some brainy genius. I don't know, but I'm waiting on it. But you know what? 
if he gets a job, if, if, if he goes to school or if he goes to a training program and learns how to weld or, or learn, learns how to build a house and he get, gets a job and he serves in the local church and loves Jesus, I'm gonna be just as proud of him. I've got aspirations. I've got these things that be oh, great if it's see it. But God said for his son, this is the thing that he's going to accomplish and he did. But he describes this son a little bit more. He tells us in verse six, unto us a son is born and unto us a son is given and the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Jesus is the fullness of wisdom. All the counsel of the heavens reside within Christ. Uh, it, it's described several times in, the, in throughout the Old and New Testament how creation took place. Each and every time it was the word of God that spoke these things into existence, that he spoke these things. And John tells us in chapter one that it was by the word, that, that the word was God, and the word was with God, and by the word were all things made that have been made. The author of Hebrews tells us that it was, it was through him uh, who was the exact radiance of the glory of God. It was through him that all things were made that have been made. It was Paul in Colossians chapter one that tells us that it, Christ is the image of the invisible God and that by him were all things made and through him do all things hold together. And then you get over to Solomon. You think, well, this is all New Testament stuff. That's just New Testament appropriation of what we find. No, no, no. You get over to Solomon, the book of Proverbs in chapter eight as he's lauding wisdom. And it was wisdom that laid the foundation of the world. The wonderful counselor, the fullness of wisdom. Some of you act a fool because you don't know Jesus. Some of you act a fool because you ain't walking with him. Jesus came and was ushered in and gave us the fullness of the wisdom of God. Why would we not want that? Why would we claim that and not walk in that? Remember, he came to give us a new walk of life. Some of us call the name of Jesus, but we're living just like we lived before we ever knew the name of Jesus. He's the fullness of the wisdom of God. Not only is Jesus the fullness of wisdom, the fullness of wisdom he is the fullness of God. Look at this. Keep in mind, this is God speaking, okay? God is saying this. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. It's not a man-made thing that Jesus is the Son of God. God says it right there. 700 years before Jesus shows up in the flesh. He already exists, but he's not a baby yet. He's not in the flesh yet. Mighty God, the fullness of God in this baby. You want to know why Isaiah was so excited to write, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given 700 years before, because he saw the fullness of God and what God was promising about this baby. Jesus also gives benevolent protection. He says that he's the eternal father, everlasting father. He's saying, well, what's that got to do with protection? 
in the Jewish mind, in the Jewish concept, in the Hebrew understanding, especially in this time, your father was your covering. You were covered by the name of your father. That's why the people of Israel would always flesh, uh, flash back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, back to their fathers. That provided covering. What covering did was it protected you financially, it protected you physically, it protected you emotionally, it protected you socially, it protected you in all things. And you see time and time again where there is brokenness in the family and it's dad or great-great-grandpa that has to step in because there is the covering of the father. And Jesus' name is the eternal father because he is offering you a benevolent protection that only he can. That no matter what sword or what famine or, or, or what persecution this life could offer, he is the one that has protected you for eternity as your savior benevolent protector. So, a few years ago, Christian and I bought our first house when we were in South Carolina. I say a few years ago, it's what, nine years ago almost now? And um, we, first time homeowners, didn't know all these things. And so we're trying to figure out, we're talking with homeowners insurance as we're going through the mortgage process. And, and we're, we're trying to talk to them about, okay, what kind of discounts can we get, right? Because I don't want to overpay for insurance. And they're like, well, how far is the fire hydrant from your house? Literally, it was right across the street. And so I'm like, um, 35 feet, I think. Because uh, it literally was right there. Like, well, do you have an alarm? Well, we've got this thing in a box that's kind of a local alarm thing. Christy's stepdad had given us these battery powered sensors to to put like on the doors or whatever and it had this box that we could tap into a phone line but we didn't have a landline but it would make this like but it was only if you set the alarm now here here's the thing a home alarm is a really good thing if you use it it does you no good to have a home alarm system whether it's monitored or not monitored but not actually set the alarm when you leave the house because when you leave the house and someone breaks into your home and you're, it's unsecured, you might have the protection in name. You might even have the little ADT sticker out there in the front so somebody might be deterred. But if you don't actually set the alarm, it does no good to protect you. Correct? It does no good to, to it does no good to, uh, you're not going to protect yourself if you carry a sidearm that has no bullets in it. Someone can come and hold you up and you have no way to protect yourself. See, Jesus came to offer us a greater protection, but we want to walk in the way of the world. We want to walk out here and we are isolated from the protection that he has come to offer. He is the fullness of God, but he is also the benevolent, benevolent protector of us. And then the fourth thing, Jesus provides untroubled rule. It says there that he is also the prince of peace. I've had opportunities to sit with family members in the moments before and the moments after someone passes away. I've had the conversation when that unsettling phone call comes in that there's been a traffic accident and someone's gone. I've had the conversation someone who's lost their job or, or gotten that 
terrible diagnosis. That one that you know is basically a death sentence. And you know what's always stood out to me? That in the cases where I have no doubt about the assurance of the salvation of the person with whom I'm speaking, there is this unquestionable, unexplainable peace. There's no worry. There's no trepidation. It's okay. A few years ago, there was a man in our last church that we were on vacation. I get a phone call from him. He'd been battling some just chest congestion issues. Started off as like a spring, summer cold. It just never went away, never went away. And get a phone call while, while we're at the beach. And he wasn't one that would normally call when he knows that I'm on vacation or whatever. But I remember telling Christy, I said, I need to take this. And he had just found out that he had lung cancer. The lung cancer had spread to his brain. He had never smoked a day in his life. So I asked him, I said, what are they going to do? He said, I don't know. I've got to go back next week for tests. I'm in the hospital right now. Um, I'll let you know more as as I can. Went to the hospital to see him as soon as we got back. I, th- I think I literally dropped Christy and the kids off at the house and didn't even unload the car, just went back straight to the hospital. Talked with him, prayed with him, found out that he was going to be on a chemo treatment, all these things. I would go with him from time to time to sit, as he had to sit for a few hours with the chemo drip. And all the man would do would be talk to his nurses and the doctoral staff about Christ. Within six weeks, he passed away. The week before he passed away, he was in ICU. The cancer had spread. There was nothing really more they could do. He's in ICU. This is the next to last time that I saw him. He was still able to talk, had a ventilator. He pulled the tube out of his mouth and could barely speak to talk to the nurse to make sure that she knew Jesus. That is the untroubled rule of Christ in your life. That is what the Prince of Peace does. That no matter what the circumstance of life is, you have a joy in your heart that can't help but speak of the beauty of Christ, the beauty of this promised child, the beauty of this son. Why? Because, he says in verse 7, there will be no end to the increase of his government because the birth of Christ inaugurates the kingdom of God. The birth of Christ, this baby was born. The heir that would forever sit on the throne of God was here. And he came and he says, there will be no end to the kingdom of God. There will be no end to the rule of God. There will be no end to what God has promised would come. We do not live in the brightest of days. That is no secret to any of us. Maybe the words of this Christmas hymn, Christmas carol, I never know whether to call it a carol or a hymn. I heard the bells on Christmas Day. And it says, I thought as how the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along through unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song 
of peace on earth, goodwill to men. What Henry Longfellow captures so beautifully in these words is the reality of the world where you and I live. It seems that there's no peace. It seems that hate is strong. I'd really like to know what was going on in Longfellow's day for him to think that hate was strong based on what I've seen in our world today. And it's hard to rectify. How does that happen when God has sent his son to be the king of kings? Because we, the church, have an opportunity to display the power of the kingdom of God, the power of this baby that was born of the Savior, to say, this is what God foretold. This was the announced birth, and this is what he did. And I have a new way to live. I have a new walk because there is a prince of peace. There is a wonderful counselor. There is a mighty God, and I am his child. Because it says, then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor does he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail with peace on earth. Goodwill to men. It's the beauty of Christmas. It's the beauty of this child that was born. It's the beauty of being part of the kingdom of God. Maybe today you're realizing that You've heard the name of Jesus, but you've never trusted the name of Jesus. You've heard of Christmas, but you've never known the true meaning of Christmas. Maybe today as we stand and sing a hymn of invitation in just a moment, you'll come and receive the gift that God gave that we could know him in Christ Jesus. Let's pray.